The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I like to continue going through a few more of these Kingdom of Heaven parables from the Gospel of Matthew. The last one we considered was in Matthew chapter 22 of the parable of the marriage feast. And again, I'd like to highlight a few circumstances that we find in the chapters leading up to Matthew 25 and the parable of the ten virgins that we want to look at this morning. But we want to highlight a few things because this is the last week of Jesus' life. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 21 was when he had his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem for the last time. And he immediately goes into the temple and purges that out. He is delivering these scathing parables about the uh, leaders of the people and the Jews and their rejection of him. And he continues on that same theme. Uh, and I, I think much of this builds to, uh, to the, the Olivet Discourse that we see in Matthew 24 that's very significant in, in many different ways. But will we see this last week of Jesus' life just building, this tension building? They already hated him, the, the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees. They, they already hated Jesus, and they were afraid of the influence that he was getting. But this just builded throughout this week to where finally they were willing to, to falsely accuse him and to crucify him. So after he gives this, <clears throat> this parable of the marriage feast where he, uh, and then previous parables, where he not very subtly uh, condemns the, the Pharisees and the leaders of the people very harshly in Matthew 22 and verse 15, then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. So now... We've decided that we need to put this guy to death, but we have to have something to be able to bring him uh, to trial for. And they tried, they tried, they tried, and he put them, uh, put them to naught every time. And then what did they end up putting him to trial for? Well, the, he said he was the king of the Jews. <laughs> and in that charge, he was correct. Uh, he, he was justly uh, justly the king of the Jews, but they couldn't find any legitimate reason to put him to death, so therefore they had to settle for an unjust reason, being the king, being the king of the Jews and trying to usurp Rome when he brought him before Pilate, etc., etc. So the Pharisees took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. They start trying to tempt him about uh, taxes, and then he puts them to naught right there. Then the, Sadduce <clears throat> the Sadducees get involved in verse 23. The same day, came to him the Sadducees, which is really amazing, by the way. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they couldn't stand one another just as bad as a hardcore Republican and a hardcore Democrat. I mean, it was just as toxic as it is in our political environment, but they were united in hating Jesus. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the extreme political factions were united in hating Jesus. So now the Sadducees get involved. They ask him about the resurrection, and you probably know those verses very well. Uh, that he says that in the resurrection we're neither married or given to marriage, etc., etc. And then, the uh, verse 34, the uh, Pharisees 
heard that he put the Sadducees to silence. So now they got a lawyer to come and ask him something. Master, which is the greatest commandment? And then the Lord gives us this beautiful description of the greatest commandment and the second is like unto it, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul and all thy mind. And then the Pharisees, uh, that, so they, they've, uh, the Pharisees tried to entangle him, the Sadducees, then they, uh, they recruited the, the lawyers, the doctors of the Mosaic law to do it, and they all three failed. And then Jesus asked them a question. <laughs> Jesus kind of turns the table a little bit. He asked them a question. And he says, uh, what do you think of Christ? This is verse 42. Whose son is he? He's the son of David. And he said unto them, well, essentially, why did David call him Lord? If, if he's the son of David, why did he call him Lord? And, and then I think they realized that they, they were in trouble. They said in verse 46, and no man was able to answer him a word, neither does any man from that day forward ask him any more questions. <laughs> so they gave it a shot. They gave it a shot to try to entangle the Son of God in, uh, in, a, in some phrase that they could use against him in a court of law. And then they decided, you know what? I think we're just going to have to fabricate stuff. I think we're just going to have to make this up. We better quit asking questions because he's making us look bad in front of the people. All right. Uh, and then he issues another scathing rebuke. Uh, of these scribes and the Pharisees. And you can read it for yourself if you want, but I was skimming through this this morning. And he uses this phrase at least seven different times, beginning in verse 13, all throughout the chapter. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, exclamation mark. All right? And then he also says another time, woe unto you, blind guides. But just that phrase right there, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites exclamation mark he has that seven times in this narrative right here and we remember we talked last time about how most of the people most of the people just kind of made light of jesus they just uh went about their merry way and they they lived their life but there was a remnant who wanted to kill him okay and this was the remnant the leaders of the people spiritual wickedness in high places and then he condemns them very harshly. Why did sepulchers and you build the tombs of the prophets, blind guides, straining that, swallowed a cannibal, just, just lights them up. Uh, and he's probably doing this in the temple, by the way. I, I don't think he was just telling them this in private. He's probably telling it in front of everybody. And boy, again, it just keeps building. Uh, well, actually, he did, he did uh, say this in the temple because... Uh, we find at the beginning of the 24th chapter uh, that Jesus went out and departed from the temple, all right? So he's standing, I want you to think about, it. I mean, they hated him anyway, and they already got, kind of had their foot in their mouth by asking him all these questions. And then he stands up in the temple and delivers this discourse. <laughs> Boy, if they, they doubled down on, on finding a reason to kill him after, after this. Uh, but he's about to deliver in the 24th chapter uh, what's commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. And I want to highlight these verses at the end of chapter 23, which leads right into that, okay, uh, that, that I believe is very significant. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 23 and in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. 
For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So he's talking to the, the general um, lineage of the Jews. Not, not every single Jew and not everyone in the city of Jerusalem. But as a whole, the Jewish nation, he came unto his own and his own received him not. As a whole, uh, and as a majority, so to say, they did not receive Jesus, and because of that, because of Jerusalem, that previously was the city of God. It was the city of David, and Jesus came for the last time into the city of David, and not only did the, did, did the majority of the Jews reject him, but they put him to death, okay? They put him to death, and he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he's talking to the, the Jews that inhabit this city, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Desolate. Okay? And, as we talked about in previous messages, there came a time where the gospel was intended to be brought to the Jews first. But, because you count yourself unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we move to the Gentiles. The, the, the center of the kingdom will shift from Jerusalem, especially after 70 AD. So he delivers this, this uh, scathing rebuke in the temple, and then in chapter 24 and in verse 1, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Okay? So he's leaving the temple after he delivers this, and then he tells his disciples, he came unto him, uh, his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple, and this is highlight, highlighted in uh, other gospel accounts about how they were really bragging about this temple. Uh, the temple had already been destroyed one time, but then it was built back up. This is known as Herod's temple, by the way. So they were really bragging about uh, the the beauty of that temple, which was nothing compared to the, the beauty of Solomon's temple. But then Jesus says, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So the, the, the disciples are bragging about the beauty of the temple, and he said, look, there's going to come a time where this temple is going to be totally flattened. It's going to be totally destroyed. And when you interpret the Olivet Discourse that is in Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21, you need, it's, it's very confusing, and I don't pretend to know everything about it, uh, but... I believe the general understanding of this discourse that actually continues all the way through the end of the 25th chapter, by the way. <clears throat> Jesus is answering these three questions, okay? They leave the temple. He says this temple is going to be destroyed. And they ask him what he's talking about. This is in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. He sat down upon the Mount of Olives the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? Okay, he said the temple's going to be destroyed. Okay, so he's answering three questions. When shall these things be? When is the temple going to be destroyed? Number two, what shall be the sign of thy coming? And number three, what shall be the sign of the end of the world? Okay, so he's answering those three questions in all of that discourse. And... The way, that Lord, the way that the Lord does many things uh, in Scripture and in history is he suffers things to happen at uh, a previous time in a certain way 
to teach lessons about things that are going to happen in the future. Okay? And some of this is speaking about direct events that would happen in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by Titus and the Roman army. And much of this is speaking directly of that. However, there are many things that happened in the historical facts of that siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD that are similar to events that will occur before the second coming of the Lord. One of the most significant ones would be the abomination of desolation that he talks about in here. And there are multiple fulfillments of the abomination of desolation. If you look back at uh, the book of Daniel, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, and the prophecies that were given in the book of Daniel regarding him, that was a significant fulfillment of the uh, abomination of desolation. Then you have the abomination of desolation, in, uh, which is defiling the holy place. And were, uh, they, they offered a pig, which is an unclean animal, upon the altar. Uh, and, and that happened multiple times. And then Titus did the same thing, and you had the same uh, picture of that with the man of sin from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, who sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, okay? So you have multiple fulfillments of this abomination of desolation. And there are circumstances that happened in the destruction of Jerusalem that we can learn a lot of lessons that should give us more understanding to be watchful and to be aware of our surroundings, to be aware of the events that come to where we are not caught unawares at the second coming of the Lord, okay? Uh, just for example, <clears throat> for example, speaking specifically of the destruction of Jerusalem, in Luke 21, which is another account of this, um, if you read the Word of God, okay, if these Jews, which they, they had all these Gospels prior to 70 AD, if they read, well, they had every, every Gospel but John, excuse me, they had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they had these three Gospels that told them about this. If they were reading the Word of God, they should have been aware enough of their surroundings that they saw, that they should have seen that this was a fulfillment of the word of God that's coming and then respond appropriately, okay? So this is a very simple example of this in Luke chapter 21 and in verse 20. When ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is not. Okay, now that's that would be a pretty big sign, right? If all of a sudden, you know, we're going about our daily life, we know the Romans are out there, but they're not really trying to besiege us. Well, now all of a sudden, we're totally surrounded by the Roman army. Okay, now is when I should really be reading the word of God about what he told me to do when that happened, right? So I, should, I need to be aware of my surroundings, evaluating things that are happening, and respond appropriately. So when you see the, the, uh, the city surrounded by armies, what do you need to do? Verse 21, let them that are in Judea flee to the mountains, okay? Get out of town, right? Why? Because God's told you, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. And if you are watchful and you see the, the army surrounding you, then there's going to be an opportunity, if you're vigilant, for you to get out and save your life, okay? The point here 
is that uh, if you are aware of the surroundings, then you can make decisions that are going to put you in a lot better position than if you're not watchful. Okay? And that was true of, uh, of Jews in the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But then he takes it from just the historical events of 70 AD and said, now this is what you, what you should have learned from this historical event, but now let's talk about the second coming of the Lord. Now let's talk about the return of Jesus the second time without sin unto salvation, that you, you should be aware of the circumstances around you that you should start seeing some things that make your spiritual ears perk up, okay? Uh, it describes it in other places as, as some of the birthing pains. Uh, a woman, when she's in travail, there, there, there are symptoms that start really showing right at the end before that baby's going to show up, right? And you know what? When you start seeing those symptoms, what do you do? You know it's time and you go to the doctor, right? So you evaluate the symptoms and the symptoms are going to show that the time is getting close, and, and much of the uh, similar symptoms that were leading up to 70 AD are similar symptoms that will be leading up to the second coming of the Lord. You have wars and rumors of wars. Now, I, now this is not really the purpose of our message uh, today, but just because uh, things are possibly the most inconvenient that we've ever seen them, it's just foolish in a historical sense for us to throw up our hands today and say, wow, this is the worst the world has ever been. Jesus has to come back to tomorrow. It has to be coming back tomorrow. Listen, if that's what you think, you really need to read more history books, okay? You need to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You need to read more about the history of the church. And just because it's the worst that maybe you've seen it in your lifetime, I don't think anyone could legitimately say that this is the worst it's ever been. Okay, but <clears throat> like wars and rumors of wars, that, 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 you know, yes, Russia is still messing around in Ukraine, right? But you think that's worse? If anyone had a right to think Jesus was about to come back, how about those people in World War II, right? You know, that's a real wars and rumors of wars reason to think Jesus is about to come back tomorrow. There's always been wars of rumors of wars. There's always been false Christ. There's always been people standing up and saying, I'm God. There's always been people claiming that Jesus, uh, that, that the world's going to end in such and such year. There's always been these symptoms. The point is, the closer you get to the true second coming, they become more prevalent and they escalate. Okay? They become more prevalent and they escalate. But these are symptoms. Okay? These are symptoms and things that we should be aware of, that when we see them, our spiritual eyes should be vigilant to not be afraid of the things that will come, but instead, as it says in one of the other gospel accounts, lift up your eyes because your redemption draws nigh, right? This should be uh, every single day that we live, our salvation, our final deliverance from this world is, is always nearer at the end of the day than it was at the beginning of the day, right? Our, our salvation is nearer than when you first believed, 
And that's true in a natural sense, you know. Uh, I'm one day closer to either dying or, or Jesus coming back and me being translated. And every single day, you know, you may think you had a bad day. <laughs> and we all have bad days. But at the end of the day, at a minimum, you are one day closer to seeing Jesus. <laughs> and that's a, that's a good thing to be reminded of. But there will come a time where Jesus will come back. And there are a lot of prophetic events that lead up to that. And we need to be sober, we need to be vigilant, we need to be aware of it and have your head on a swivel and be aware of it so we are not caught unawares, okay? So we're not caught unawares. There were some Jews that put their head in the sand. They had the word of God. They put their head in the sand and they lost their natural life because they didn't get out of Jerusalem when they saw something that should have uh, flagged in their mind that I need to, I need to get out of town. And it, and it was severe enough, by the way, that he said, look, don't go back and even try to pack up. Don't, don't go back and try to pack uh, for a month's vacation. You get out right now. And the people that didn't do that, they suffered for it. Okay? All right, fast forwarding. <clears throat> he gives, in Matthew chapter 24, what... It's commonly known as the Olivet Discourse, speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, but also, also prophetically pointing toward similar events and similar circumstances that will surround the second coming of the Lord. And then he makes this statement in Matthew chapter 24 and in verse 44. Therefore, actually let's read first, verse 42. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would have not suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Okay? So if you knew when the thief was, was coming... And of course, this is before security systems and all this kind of stuff nowadays, right? But if you knew when the thief was coming, then obviously you're going to be ready for the thief, right? If, 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 he, if you know he's going to come at 2.30 a.m. on Thursday, guess what? You're going to be ready with your shotgun to shoot him, right? But if you don't know he's coming, you may be caught unawares and you may be asleep, Okay. And he said, you do not know at what hour the Lord will come, but yet there are signs that are indicative that the time is drawing near. And then he gives an example here of a parable that's not directly introduced as the kingdom of heaven, but it teaches a very similar thought. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise steward, <coughs> steward, uh, servant, excuse me, let's, uh, let's get that right. Verse 45, <coughs> who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But, and if that servant, that evil servant, say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him 
and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He gives this parable of the servant, parable of the ten virgins, and the parable of the talents, and they're all teaching the same thing. Do not get complacent. Do not get lazy in our service to God, in what has been entrusted to us, because Jesus can return at any moment, right? Jesus can return at any moment. And the last thing we would ever want to do is be ashamed at the second coming of the Lord. Now, there's, a, there's much things about the second coming of the Lord that is a tremendous mystery. And I, don't, I certainly don't know how all this is going to work, especially when we're used to everything in a time sequence and, and seconds and minutes and hours and days, and we can't really fathom when eternity's ushered in. Uh, how all this works, but it, Jesus, it says that Jesus is going to come back in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. You know, I don't necessarily think when Jesus comes back, if we're if you're doing something very inappropriate, if you're um, in a place you shouldn't be in, if you're in uh, doing an action you shouldn't be engaged in, uh, I don't think I don't know if that moment is going to stand still and it's going to feel like two years worth of condemnation. It says it's in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, so it sounds like it'll be pretty quick. But even if it is pretty quick, we don't want to be engaging in activities that if any moment Jesus came back, that we would be ashamed that he caught us doing that, right? And that's the kind of mindset that we should have at all times. Why? Because he could come back at any moment, right? We should have that in mind. And I'm thankful for the parents that I have and the way that I was raised. And I had things in my mind sometimes that, you know what, maybe I'm, I'm tempted to do some small little bitty thing. But you know what, in my head, I don't want to do that because I'm afraid that maybe my parents will catch me doing it. And I'd be ashamed that they caught me doing it. And if, and if that is, in a very simple way, uh, if I if I'm, would be ashamed of my earthly uh, parents seeing me doing something that I know is wrong and I know it's inappropriate, how much more ashamed would I be if, if Jesus came back the second time and I was doing that? And, and again, I don't know the moment of time. There's some degree of, of shame that you would have, but it sure seems to me, thankfully, it won't last too long because you're going to be translated real quick. <laughs> uh, but the point is, though, why would we want to be engaging in activity that we would be ashamed at the second coming? Wouldn't it be much better for us to, maybe I have the, op the opportunity to go do something of the world, but instead I choose to forsake that, to come into worship. And, and I just feel like, and I have no Bible to back this up, but it sure seems to me that there are going to be some people worshiping in spirit and in truth in public worship when Jesus comes back the second time. I, I just feel like there's going to be some group of people <laughs> that, are, that are engaged in public worship when Jesus comes back the second time. So maybe that's the day that you said, you know what, I'm not going to go do such and such. I'm going to choose to go to church. And boy, what a happy church meeting that'll be, right? <laughs> if it just so happens that that's when Jesus comes back the second time, and boy, what a great confirmation and blessing that you chose to do that instead of going and doing something else, okay? So, now we finally arrive at the parable of the ten virgins, okay? Uh, we'll, see, we'll see what we can do with this <laughs> uh, and try to address as much as we can with the time that we have available. Matthew chapter 25, very similar parable to be watchful, to be vigilant, to be prepared 
with the understanding that Jesus' second coming could be at any moment. Okay? Matthew chapter 25 and in verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, and five were foolish. And they that were foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil with them. The wise took oil in their vessels with the lamps, and the bridegroom tarried, and they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, and behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil that our lamps are gone out, for our lamps are gone out. And the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. And afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. <clears throat> okay? Now, first of all, as we've considered in uh, these other parables, we need to understand that this is talking about the kingdom of heaven. Okay, this is talking about the church. This is talking about discipleship. I'm not talking about heaven and hell. When it uses this language in these contexts of, of somebody being cast into weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's the judgment of the Lord of a disobedient child of God. That's not hell, okay? And that's very important for us to understand this because who are the people that are under consideration here? There are ten virgins that have lambs. Okay, and virgins that have lamps. Well, virgins describe purity. Purity. And they have a lamp. Well, what's the church? A candlestick. We are the light of the world. Okay? So we get here to the end of this, and the, the, the virgins, these foolish virgins, they, they made a bad decision. They didn't bring the oil with them, and it affected their fellowship with the bridegroom when he returned. But here at the end... They say, let us in. Lord, Lord, open to us. And he says, verily, I know you not. And many people take those verses to say, well, that, that just shows that they were never children of God to start with. God's going to cast them in hell. And these foolish virgins, either they were, or even worse than saying they weren't to start with, uh, they were virgins, but they messed up. And now because they messed up, they're not uh, once saved, always saved. Yeah, they started out as virgins, but they messed up and they didn't have enough oil, so now God's going to cast them into hell. It doesn't make any sense for this to be a parable of the kingdom of heaven and Jesus be talking about non-elect people as virgins with lamps, right? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's talking about children of God, but it's a reality that at the second coming of the Lord, there will be some children of God that have not planned appropriately for them to have enough oil for the long run. Okay? Now, I want to back up for a minute. <clears throat> back up for a minute. Um, 
back when I was exercising and I had a regular two Sunday appointment here in Macedonia before I was called as pastor, I, I was studying the Jewish marriage uh, ceremony and just a beautiful picture of that. We'll try to give a summary of that. Um, but I took quite a few Sundays. I think that was probably my first sermon series here. I'm sure all of y'all remember those sermons from 2014, late 2014 and early 20. I'm sure y'all all remember them, so I don't need to refresh you on, on them. Uh, but beautiful picture of the Jewish wedding ceremony and, and how that relates to so many important things. And we really have to understand that to understand the parable of the ten virgins because marriage, the, the, the marriage customs in the Middle East that the Jews came from, and some of them are still uh, relevant today as well, is so much different than the, than the marriage customs that we have in America. Okay? Uh, and we really have to understand that the Jewish uh, wedding ceremony and all the circumstances surrounding that for us to really capture the gravity of not just what's being said right here, but also multiple other verses that are referencing this, this, uh, this marriage relationship too. So first of all, and you're probably aware of this because this is still customary today, that in the, in the Middle East, that in America, the person that you choose to marry is based on the consent of the, the bride and the groom. Typically, the, the groom will ask the, the bride to marry him, and she, would, and she would accept. But in that culture over in the Middle East, there is not a consent between the what will be the husband and the wife. Instead, there is a negotiation between the father of the bride and the prospective groom, okay? And it is the father of the bride that determines who his daughter will marry. And there is a dowry, which is a payment, that is required for that transaction to be completed. Okay, now, as we go through this, think about all the spiritual connections of this. It's not the bride's choice to choose the husband like it is nowadays. Instead, it's the father's choice to give the bride to the prospective groom. Well, that's election, isn't it? That's unconditional election. It's God's choice to give the church, the bride, to the son. And one of the conditions of that uh, marriage relationship and that mar marriage covenant would be a price has to be paid to the father of the bride for him to have the right to marry them. Well, what was the dowry for, for the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? It was the blood of Jesus, right? So that was the dowry, okay? And then you had the wedding ceremony. They both wear crowns in the middle of that. And, and there's many uh, scriptures that reference that. But one of the most significant uh, actions after the after the, the wedding ceremony is that there was a period of separation after the wedding ceremony where the, where the groom went back to the father's house to prepare a place on the, on the side or, the, or the, the back of the father's house for him and his bride 
to reside. So I want you to think Jesus Christ paid the dowry, right? He paid the dowry on the cross and he went back up into heaven. And what did he say he was going to do in John chapter 14? I go to prepare a place for you. And in my father's house are many mansions. He went back to the father's house to prepare not just a little, a little house on the side of his father's house. He went back to prepare many mansions for his bride. But, but, but then the father of the groom, he was the one that determined. The father of the groom was the one that determined when the house was appropriate and ready. And he was the one that told the son, okay, now you have the right to go back and get your bride and take her home. It was the evaluation of the father. And the father said, you go and get your bride now, okay? Now, that is, that's important because I, I know you've probably read this verse just like everybody else that understands the, the, the perfect omniscience of the Trinity and how in the world could Jesus not know something that God knew here in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and in verse 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. How in the world could Jesus not know when he's coming back? He knows when he's coming back. He's saying here that it is the Father's determination of when the house is ready, and he's the one who tells me, all right, son, go get your bride. Go get your bride, and you bring her back. So there came a time, there came a time where roughly in the Jewish uh, customs, roughly 9 to 12 months, okay? So, so the, the, uh, the groom leaves. He goes to build the house uh, at the Father's house. And she knows that because the, the, you, know, you know the importance of a betrothal, right? Uh, with Mary and, and Joseph, it wasn't just engaged and we can you know, turn the room back in and go our separate ways. It, they were legally married in the midst of the betrothal and they had to go through divorce proceedings. So they are married, but yet the, 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 the groom and the bride are separated. There's a period of time where the groom and the bride are separated. And that's the period of time we're in right now, right? Right? But then there's going to come a time where the father is going to tell the son, okay, the bride is ready, the house is ready, you go get the bride that you've loved from before the foundation of the world, and now you bring her back to heaven and to the father's house. Now, as when that decree came, the father would give a command to the son to go receive his bride, there would be the friend of the bridegroom, this is before cell phones and all this stuff, right? You're not going to just send a text message and say, hey, I'm coming tomorrow. The only way they knew was in person. So then there was a friend of the bridegroom that went before the groom announcing as they went that the, that, that the groom is coming, okay? So the bride is sitting at her house, and they know the time is getting near. You know, they're not going to be sitting on pins and needles when he's been gone for a month. They know it's roughly 9 to 12 months. They're not going to be sitting on pins and needles uh, when it's early on. But once it gets to 9 or 10 months, we don't know the exact day he's coming, but we know it's getting close. We know it's getting close. So, therefore, there was this procedure that then the, uh, the, the friends of the, of the bride would be aligning the route that the groom would be coming. So therefore, you have these 10, here are these 10 virgins that are there that they're supposed to be watching for the announcement that the bridegroom is coming. And then what would happen is they would hear the voice of the bridegroom. 
they would hear the voice of the friend of the bridegroom. And then they would go, when they heard that, they would then go and tell the bride that he's coming. Okay? Okay, first of all, the friend of the bridegroom at the first coming of Jesus was John the Baptist. John the Baptist. I want to go ahead and turn over there and read that. In John chapter 3, this is prophesied, or John's role was prophesied back in Isaiah. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the one that's coming. Jesus uh, is, is the, the groom that's coming his first time, but now there's the friend of the bridegroom that is, uh, that is announcing his coming at Jesus' first advent. John chapter 3 and in verse 28. Ye yourselves bear ye witness, and I say, I am not the Christ. But I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. My joy, therefore, is fulfilled. So John the Baptist was the friend of the bridegroom, announcing the first coming of the groom. Well, who's going to be the friend of the bridegroom announcing the second coming? You know what's going to be surrounding uh, Jesus' second coming? There's going to be a shout and the voice of the archangel, right? That's going to be the friend of the bridegroom announcing the second coming of the Lord. And what should happen is that these, these virgins, which are God's people that have lamps, we are the light of the world. We are a, a city that's set on a hill, the candlestick. We need to have be vigilant to have enough oil in our lamps to where we're burning bright, right? We're burning bright when Jesus comes the second time. But unfortunately, what do we do? What do we do? The nature of, of God's people is to slumber and sleep. And even the wise ones, okay? Even the wise virgins, verse 5 of Matthew 25, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Every one of them. Even the wise ones fell asleep. You know, think about the uh, disciples. They went into Gethsemane. He said, stay here. I'm going to go go on and pray. You stay here, watch and pray. You enter not into temptation. And he came back and they were asleep. He said, you can watch one hour with me? Just one hour. One hour and you've fallen asleep. Well, what happens when God's people are having to wait for 2,000 years, right? Inevitably, we're going to get complacent. Inevitably, we're not going to be sober and vigilant. So they all slumbered and slept. And the Scripture is very clear. By the second coming of the Lord, there will be a great falling away. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that coincides with the rising of the man of sin. These days are not going to come except there's a great falling away first. And I don't know where we're at in, in the world history and, and when Jesus is going to come back the second time. But I, I don't know how you could look at the, the numbers and the state of the church and see anything other than we're in a state of decline. I don't know if it's, if it's steep enough to where it's a true falling away at this point. But the graph is not going up. The graph is going down. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, this is a lesson on prayer, but he introduces this here. Luke chapter 18. And verse 8. I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, 
shall he find faith on the earth? Now, obviously, there's going to be children of God that have faith that are born again, right? I mean, obviously, there, there's going to be the indwelling nature of God of faith, but is there going to be devoted, sincere, worshiping in spirit and in truth, children of God walking in faithfulness at the second coming of the Lord? Jesus was wondering aloud, even while he was here the first time, Am I really going to find anybody? There's always going to be a remnant. God has promised there's always going to be a remnant, but it sure seems that the majority of God's children at the end of time, they're they're not preparing with enough oil. They're not. Why? Because they're too focused on the things of the world to be filling up their lamps with the oil of the word of God and all these other things. And Jesus is wondering aloud, when I show up, am I really going to find that many faithful disciples? There'll be some. But unfortunately, many children of God will be very foolish in those last days. <clears throat> so now the bridegroom is actually coming. And then at midnight, this is verse 6, at midnight there was a cry. This is the voice of the, bri- the, voice of the friend of the bridegroom announcing he's coming. This great announcement, which will be the, the shout and the voice of the archangel. And then... The virgins arose and they trimmed their lamps, but the foolish did not prepare ahead of time for the long haul. Okay? They weren't vigilant. They just felt like they could they could just get by. And then <laughs> it's funny how, you know, the, the diligent people always have to carry the weight of the non-diligent people. They probably felt like that. Uh, well, we don't have to carry ours because I borrow oil from this person all the time. I'm sure that uh, when when I when I'm out, I can just borrow it from somebody else. <laughs> you know, someone else is always going to do that in the church. Someone else is always doing. Someone else is always doing it. Well, in this instance, they said, "Hey, can we borrow your oil?" He said, "Well, we don't have enough for both of us. They don't have enough for both of us. They didn't prepare accordingly." And they probably felt like somebody, someone else was going to bail them out for being negligent, okay? So now they said, look, you're going to have to go buy your own oil. We don't have enough oil for you and us because we prepared for us. <laughs> we didn't prepare for you. We prepared for us. So the foolish people, foolish brides, uh, virgins, they go and they try to, to um, get oil. But the problem is... There's not any oil stores open at midnight, are there? No. The people who own oil stores, they, they like to sleep in the middle of the night, don't they, right? So they're not going to be able to find any oil at midnight. So guess what? Now they realize, man, we can't we run out of oil. We can't do anything. And then they finally, uh, they finally go back and they, here's the point. They missed the coming of the bridegroom. Now, does that mean that we're going to miss the second coming? Well, no, of course not, right? <laughs> Every eye is going to see him. Every single eye is going to, even those that pierced him. But the last thing we would want to do is be a foolish virgin that would be ashamed when he comes. Now, this is not all about, again, I, I, don't, I don't pretend to know all the logistics because it's way above my pay grade of what's going to happen at the second coming of the Lord. But this is more than that, really, talking about our communion and fellowship with the Lord while we wait on him coming, okay? So if we are wise and we're vigilant and we're saying, you know, that, that's, how the, that's how the whole canon of Scripture in the book of Revelation closes. 
John sees these amazing visions in the book of Revelation and, and his conclusion of all of that is, Lord, come quickly. His desire is for Jesus to come quickly and I want to be prepared for that. I want to be looking expectantly for that instead of me just going and, and consuming all the things of this world and then, and then it showing up as a, as a thief in the night. So now these virgins come and they knock on the door and they say in verse 11, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. I know you not. And unfortunately, many people are going to go straight to Matthew chapter 7 and this, <clears throat> this teaching and the Sermon on the Mount of wolves in sheep's clothing and false prophets that, that uses what uh, on the surface might appear to be similar language in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. <clears throat> and not everyone that said unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in, and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. You see that shows right there that these, these virgins, they were either false professors or unregenerates the whole time and God's gonna cast them in hell. Listen, this is talking about fellowship with Jesus Christ while we wait. Here in Matthew chapter seven, he's not talking about foolish virgins. He's not talking about foolish virgins with lamps. What's he talking about? Wolves in sheep's clothes. Those are two different things, aren't they? <laughs> Wolves in sheep's clothing are two entirely different things than virgins with lamps. They're not the same thing. He says, I know you not. He didn't say, I never knew you. But don't you know that there is such an intimacy of fellowship that you have with Jesus when, you know, if you get up in the morning, if you get up in the morning and you approach the day with the attitude that, you know what, Lord, this might be either through me passing away or through your second coming. Lord, this might be my last opportunity to glorify you in all I say and do today. This might be my last opportunity to fill my mind and meditate wholly on the Word of God on a daily basis. This, this might be my last opportunity to pray without ceasing today. And if you approach your every day with that attitude of, we don't know when Jesus is coming back the second time, and I want to be found a wise virgin. I, I want to honor the Lord. If you approach the Lord that day uh, with that kind of an attitude, there is an intimacy of knowledge and fellowship that you're going to have with Jesus that you're not going to have if you're just enraptured in all the things of this world and and going 90 to nothing and not focused on the Lord at all, if you live with a reminder of the second coming of the Lord could be at any moment, it could be today, 
you will have such closeness of fellowship with the Lord that when he's not going to, you're not going to come to that door and say, you know what? You were foolish. You were neglectful. You have prevented yourself from being in the house, partaking of the blessings of the marriage feast between the bride and the husband. We don't want to be outside that door, right? We don't want to be outside that door. We want to have communion and fellowship with Jesus on a daily basis. And it's interesting the, <laughs> the contrast of who's on which side of the door uh, between this parable and then Revelation chapter 3 where we have the church at Laodicea, right? Church at Laodicea, the Lord is at the door knocking. The church is prideful, rich and increased with goods. We don't thank you, Lord, but we don't really need you. And Jesus not, is knocking on the door of his church and saying, hey, if you're willing to open the door, I will come in and sup with you. I'll have fellowship with you. If any man opens the door, I'm willing to have fellowship with you. Why? Because unfortunately, the Lord was on the outside of his church. That's unfortunate, isn't it? And now you have the roles reversed in the parable of the, of the virgins, now the Lord is inside the house. <laughs> and who's he in there with? The bride and the wise virgins. He's in there. And the foolish virgins are knocking on the door saying, can you please let me in? Can you please let me in? And Jesus says, listen, because you are neglectful, you have forfeited these temporal blessings in the kingdom of heaven of fellowship with me. Well, if that's the, the effect of that, then what do we need to do? <laughs> Make sure you have your oil trimmed, right? It's inevitable. It's inevitable. All 10 of those virgins fell asleep. Listen, I, I, I try to remind myself very often of the promise in, in Galatians that if we're not weary in well-doing, then in due season, in due season, we will reap if we faint not, if we're not weary in well-doing. But the reality is we all get weary in well-doing. We all get weary in that. We all get complacent. And, and you look at, that, <laughs> look at that oil getting a little bit low, and you're like, well, you know what? Yeah, I know it's getting low. I'll fill it up tomorrow. Yeah, I know it's getting I'll fill it up tomorrow. I'll, I'll fill it up tomorrow. Next thing you know, you're out of oil and it's midnight. Okay. What's the remedy for this? It's so simple, right? <laughs> What's the remedy for this? The Lord's not saying, fill up your lamp or I'm going to cast you in hell. He's saying, look, child of God, make sure you got enough oil for the long run, right? Make sure you got enough oil for your lamp. And, and, and if you were faithful, well, he's going to welcome you into the marriage feast, isn't he? he his, his desire is not to, to forfeit uh, faithful children of God from fellowship with him. But at the same time, God is not mocked, okay? At the same time, God is not mocked. What we sow, that shall we also reap. So God's given us plenty of stuff to fill up our, our, our oil can. Our, our, there's no reason for our lamp to ever go out. That's the point, right? There's no reason for our, our lamp to ever go out. Be sober, be vigilant, and look expectantly toward the Lord's second coming. I'll tell you, the sufferings of this world, they are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And I can just um, 
the, the scriptures talk in almost terrifying terms of there's going to come a time before Jesus returns that's been worse than this world has ever seen. That's what Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 says. And, and that's hard to fathom that it's going to be worse than it's ever seen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there will be great suffering for God's people. But you have greater fellowship with Jesus in the midst of suffering than you do in prosperity and convenience. And I don't, I don't pray this to, to have any, any uh, better enjoyment of, of uh, heaven or, or anything. But I, I hope, I hope if God sees fit, uh, the world's going to have to go down so bad for this to happen most likely um but i hope that i am among some of those blessed children of god that will be here hopefully worshiping in spirit and in truth when he comes back the second time and i tell you being resurrected out of the grave is going to be amazing that's going to be amazing but if the lord is gracious i sure wouldn't mind being finding out what being translated feels like and it's going to be just as good as being resurrected. I know, I know that, right? Because at the end, at the end result, all that matters is the end result that we're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But boy, what a feeling it would be for us to be faithful, for us to be possibly even in worship, and then to hear that sound, to hear the shout and the voice of the archangel, to hear that trumpet sound, and to experience, even if it is just for a split second, to experience what being translated and glorified feels like. And you know what? It's just hard. If you have that in the forefront of your mind, it's hard to not say anything other than what the Apostle John said. Oh, Jesus, please come quickly. (laughs) Jesus, please don't tarry. I understand there's children of God that have to be born. I understand there's children of God that have to be born again. And I know that that you're not going to come back until every child of grace has been, been regenerated. And, but, and Lord, you're in charge of all that. Oh, but Lord, please come quickly. <laughs> Especially when the weight of this world gets so heavy. Oh, Lord, please come quickly. Because this world is such a light affliction. It's such a light affliction. And if we can view the circumstances of our life through an eternal lens and through the lens of the second coming of the Lord, boy, it gives us so much strength and encouragement to be able to deal with the challenges of life with the right perspective. So much is about perspective. And it's just going to be hard for you to have the wrong perspective if you're walking with a, 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 a cognizant reality of the second coming of the Lord at any moment. And I certainly hope and pray that God will bless us to be mindful of that, to be, to be sober, to be vigilant, to fill up our lamp, lamps properly to where we can be wise servants of the Lord that would be honoring to Jesus Christ. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.